Unto this last, Essay 4, Ad Valorem, According to Value. In the last paper we saw that just payment of labour consisted in a sum of money which would approximately obtain equivalent labour at a future time. We have now to examine the means of obtaining such equivalence. Which question involves the definition of value, wealth, price and produce? None of these terms are yet defined so as to be understood by the public, but the last, produce, which one might have thought the clearest of all, is in use the most ambiguous, and the examination of the kind of ambiguity with its use will best open the way of our work. In his chapter on capital, Mr. J.S. Mill instances, as a capitalist, a hardware manufacturer, who having intended to spend a certain portion of the proceeds of his business in buying plate and jewels, changes his mind and pays it as wages to additional workpeople. The effect is stated by Mr. Mill to be that more food is appropriated to the consumption of productive labourers. Now I do not ask, though had I written this paragraph it would surely have been asked of me, what is to become of the silversmiths? If they are truly unproductive persons, we will acquiesce in their extinction. And though in another part of the same passage, the hardware merchant is supposed also to dispense with a number of servants, whose food is thus set free for productive purposes, I do not inquire what will be the effect, painful or otherwise, upon the servants, of this emancipation of their food, but I very seriously inquire why ironwares produce and silverwares not. That the merchant consumes the one and sells the other certainly does not constitute the difference, unless it can be shown that commodities are made to be sold and not to be consumed. The merchant is an agent of conveyance to the consumer in one case, and is himself the consumer in the other, but the labourers are in either case equally productive since they have produced goods to the same value, if the hardware and plate are both goods. And what distinction separates them? Is it possible that in the comparative estimate of the moralist, which Mr. Mills says political economy has nothing to do, a steel fork might appear a more substantial production than a silver one? We may grant also that knives, no less than forks, are good produce, and scythes and ploughshares serviceable articles. But how of bayonets? Supposing the hardware merchant to effect sale of these, by help of the setting free of the food of his servants and his silversmith, is he still employing productive labourers, or in Mr. Mill's words, labourers who increase the stock of permanent means of enjoyment? Or if, instead of bayonets, he supplies bombs, will not the absolute and final enjoyment of these very energetically produced articles, each of which cost £10, be dependent on a proper choice of time and place for their employment. Choice, that is to say, depending on those philosophical considerations with which political economy has nothing to do. I should have regretted the need of pointing out inconsistency in any portion of Mr. Mill's work, had not the value of his work proceeded from its inconsistencies. He deserves honour among economists by inadvertently disclaiming the principles which he states and tacitly introducing the moral considerations with which he declares his science has no connection. Many of his chapters are therefore true and valuable, and the only conclusions of his which I have to dispute are those which follow from his premises. Thus, the idea which lies at the root of the passage we have just been examining, namely, 
that labor applied to produce luxuries will not support so many people as labor applied to produce useful articles is entirely true, but the instance given fails, and in four directions of failure at once, because Mr. Mill has not defined the real meaning of usefulness. The definition which he has given, capacity to satisfy a desire or serve a purpose, applies equally to the iron and silver, while the true definition, which he has not given, but which nevertheless underlies the false verbal definition in his mind and comes out once or twice by accident, as in the words, any support to life or strength, applies to some articles of iron, but not to others, and to some articles of silver, but not to others. It applies to ploughs, but not to bayonets, and to forks, but not to filigree. The eliciting of the true definition will give us the reply to our first question. What is value? Respecting which, however, we must first hear the popular statements. The word value when used without adjunct always means in political economy value in exchange. So that if two ships cannot exchange their rudders, their rudders are, in politico-economic language, of no value to either. But the subject of political economy is wealth and wealth consists of all useful and agreeable objects which possess exchangeable value. It appears then, according to Mr. Mill, that usefulness and agreeableness underlie the exchange value, and must be ascertained to exist in the thing before we can esteem it to be an object of wealth. Now the economical usefulness of a thing depends not merely on its own nature, but on the number of people who can and will use it. A horse is useless, and therefore unsaleable, if no one can ride, a sword if no one can strike, and meat if no one can eat. Thus every material utility depends on its relative human capacity. Similarly, the agreeableness of a thing depends not merely on its own likableness, but on the number of people who can be got to like it. The relative agreeableness and therefore saleableness of a pot of the smallest ale and of a donis painted by a running brook depends virtually on the opinion of Demos in the shape of Christopher Sly. That is to say, the agreeableness of a thing depends on its relative human disposition. Therefore, political economy, being a science of wealth, must be a science respecting human capacities and dispositions. But moral considerations have nothing to do with political economy. Therefore, moral considerations have nothing to do with human capacities and dispositions. I do not wholly like the look of this conclusion from Mr. Mill's statements. Let us try Mr. Ricardo's. Utility is not the measure of exchangeable value, though it is absolutely essential to it. Essential to what degree, Mr. Ricardo? There may be greater and less degrees of utility. Meat, for instance, may be so good as to be fit for anyone to eat, or so bad as to be fit for no one to eat. What is the exact degree of goodness, which is essential to its exchangeable value, but not the measure of it? How good must the meat be, in order to possess any exchangeable value? And how bad must it be, in order to possess none? There appears to be some hitch, I think, in the working even of Mr. Ricardo's principles. But let him take his own example. Suppose that in the early stages of society the bows and arrows of the hunter were of equal value with the implements of the fishermen. Under such circumstances the value of the deer, the produce of the hunter's day's labour, would be exactly, 
equal to the value of the fish, the product of the fisherman's day labour. The comparative value of the fish in the game would be entirely regulated by the quantity of labour realised in each. Indeed. Therefore, if the fisherman catches one sprat and the huntsman one deer, one sprat will be equal in value to one deer. But if the fisherman catches no sprat and the huntsman two deer, no sprat will be equal in value to two deer? No, Mr. Ricardo's supporters must say. He means on average. If the average product of a day's work of fisher and hunter be one fish and one deer, the one fish will always be equal in value to the one deer. Might I inquire the species of fish? Whale or whitebait? It would be a waste of time to pursue these fallacies further. We will seek for a true definition. Much store has been set for centuries upon the use of our English classical education. I wish that our well-educated merchants remembered this much of their Latin schooling. That the nominative of ad valorem, a word already sufficiently familiar to them, is valor, a word which therefore ought to be familiar to them. Valor from falere, to be well or strong. Strong in life if a man, or valiant, strong for life if a thing. Or valuable. To be valuable therefore is to avail towards life. A truly valuable or availing thing is that which leads to life with its whole strength. In proportion as it does not lead to life, or as its strength is broken, it is less valuable. In proportion as it leads away from life, it is unvaluable or malignant. The value of a thing, therefore, is independent of opinion and of quantity. Think what you will of it, gain how much you may of it. The value of the thing itself is neither greater nor less. For ever it avails or avails not, no estimate can raise, no disdain depress, the power which it holds from the maker of things and of men. The real science of political economy, which has yet to be distinguished from the bastard science, as medicine from witchcraft, and astronomy from astrology, is that which teaches nations to desire and labour for the things that lead to life, and which teaches them to scorn and destroy the things that lead to destruction. And if, in a state of infancy, they support indifferent things, such as the swellings of shellfish and pieces of blue and red stone to be valuable, and spend large measure of the labour which ought to be employed for the extension and ignobling of life in diving or digging for them, and cutting them into various shapes. Or if, in the same state of infancy, they imagine precious and beneficent things such as air, light, and cleanliness to be valueless. Or if, finally, they imagine the conditions of their own existence, by which alone they can truly possess or use anything, such, for instance, as peace, trust, and love, to be prudently exchangeable, when the market offers for gold, iron, or excrescences of shells. The great and only science of political economy teaches them, in all these cases, what is vanity and what is substance, and how the service of death, the lord of waste, and of eternal emptiness differs from the service of wisdom, the lady of saving, and of eternal fullness. She who has said, I will cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. 
the lady of saving, in a profounder sense than that of the savings bank, though that is a good one, Madonna della Salute, lady of health, which though commonly spoken of as if separate from wealth, is indeed a part of wealth. This word wealth, it will be remembered, is the next we have to define. To be wealthy, says Mr. Mill, is to have a large stock of useful articles. I accept this definition. Only let us perfectly understand it. My opponents often lament my not giving them enough logic. I fear I must at present use a little more than they will like, but this business of a political economy is no light one, and we must allow no loose terms in it. We have therefore to ascertain in the above definition, first what is the meaning of having, or the nature of possession, then what is the meaning of useful, or the nature of utility, and first of possession. At the crossing of the transepts of Milan Cathedral has lain for 300 years the embalmed body of St. Carlo Borromeo. It holds a golden crozier and has a cross of emeralds on its breast. Admitting the crozier and emeralds to be useful articles, is the body to be considered as having them? Do they, in the political-economical sense of property, belong to it? If not, and if we may therefore conclude generally that a dead body cannot possess property, what degree and period of animation in the body will render possession possible? As thus, lately in a wreck of a California ship, one of the passengers fastened a belt about him with 200 pounds of gold in it, with which he was found afterwards at the bottom. Now as he was sinking, had he the gold, or had the gold him? And if instead of sinking him in the sea by its weight, the gold had struck him on the forehead, and thereby caused incurable disease, supposedly palsy or insanity, would the gold in that case have had more of a possession than in the first? Without pressing the inquiry up through instances of gradually increasing vital power over the gold, I presume the reader will see that the possession or having is not an absolute, but a graduated power and consists not only in the quantity or nature of the thing possessed, but also in its suitableness to the person possessing it, and in his vital power to use it. And our definition of wealth expanded becomes, the possession of useful articles which we can use. This is a very serious change, for wealth instead of depending merely on a have, is thus seen to depend on a can. Gladiator's death on a has, but soldier's victory and a state's salvation on a all that could be. And what we reasoned of only as accumulation of material is seen to demand also accumulation of capacity. So much for our verb. Next for our adjective. What is the meaning of useful? This inquiry is closely connected with the last. For what is capable of use in the hands of some persons is capable in the hands of others of the opposite of use, called commonly from use or abuse, and it depends on the person much more than on the article whether its usefulness or abusefulness will be the quality developed in it. Thus wine which the Greeks in their Bacchus made rightly the type of all passion, and which when used cheereth God and man, that is to say strengthens both the divine life or reasoning power and the earthly or carnal power of man. Yet when it's abused, it becomes Dionysius, 
hurtful especially to the divine part of man, or reason. And again, the body itself being equally liable to use and to abuse, and when rightly disciplined, serviceable to the state, both for war and for labor, but when not disciplined or abused, valueless to the state, and capable only of continuing the private or single existence of the individual. The Greeks called such a body an idiotic or private body, from their words signifying a person employed in no way directly useful to the state, whence finally our idiot, meaning a person entirely occupied with his own concerns. Hence it follows that if a thing is to be useful, it must not be only of availing nature, but in availing hands. Or in accurate terms, usefulness is value in the hands of the valiant, so that the science of wealth being as we have just seen, when regarded as the science of accumulation, accumulative of capacity as well as material, when regarded as the science of distribution, is distribution not absolute, but discriminate, not of everything to every man, but of the right thing to the right man. A difficult science, dependent on more than arithmetic. Wealth, therefore, is the possession of the valuable by the valiant. And in considering it as a power existing in a nation, the two elements, the value of the thing and the valour of its possessor, must be estimated together. Whence it appears that many of the persons commonly considered wealthy are in reality no more wealthy than the locks of their own strong boxes are, they being inherently and eternally incapable of wealth, and operating for the nation in an economical point of view, either as pools of dead water and eddies in a stream, which so long as the stream flows are useless, or serve only to drown people, but may become of importance in a state of stagnation, should the stream dry up. Or else as dams in a river, of which the ultimate service depends not on the dam, but the miller. These accidental stays and impediments act not as wealth, but, and we ought to have a correspondent term, as ilth, causing various devastation and trouble around them in all directions. Or lastly, act not at all, but are merely animated conditions of delay, and are of no use until they are dead. This being so, the difficulty of the true science of political economy lies not merely in the need of developing manly character to deal with material value, but in the fact that while the manly character and material value only form wealth by their conjunction, they have nevertheless a mutually destructive operation on each other. For the manly character is apt to ignore or even cast away the material value. When said the Pope, Sure of qualities demanding praise, more go to ruin fortunes than to raise. And on the other hand, the material value is apt to undermine the manly character, so that it must be our work, in this issue, to examine what evidence there is of the effect of wealth on the minds of its possessors, and also what kind of person it is who usually sets himself to obtain wealth, and succeeding in doing so, and whether the world owes more gratitude to the rich or to poor men, either for their moral influence upon it, or for chief goods, discoveries, and practical advancements. I may, however, anticipate future conclusions so far as to state that in a community regulated only by laws of demand and supply, but protected from open violence, 
the persons who become rich are generally speaking industrious, resolute, proud, covetous, prompt, methodical, sensible, unimaginative, insensitive, and ignorant. The persons who remain poor are the entirely foolish, the entirely wise, the idle, the reckless, the humble, the thoughtful, the dull, the imaginative, the sensitive, the well-informed, the improvident, the irregularly and impulsively wicked, the clumsy knave, the open thief, and the entirely merciful, just, and godly person. Thus far, then, of wealth. Next we have to ascertain the nature of price, that is to say, of exchange value, and its expression by currencies. Note first of exchange, there can be no profit in it. It is only in labour that there can be profit, that is to say, making an advance, or making in favour of. From Proficio. In exchange there is only advantage, a bringing of vantage or power to the exchanging persons. Thus one man, by sowing and reaping, turns one measure of corn into two measures. That is profit. Another by digging and forging turns one spade into two spades. That is profit. But the man who has two measures of corn wants something to dig, and the man who has two spades wants something to eat. They exchange the gained grain for the gained tool, and both are better for the exchange. But though there is much advantage in the transaction, there is no profit. Nothing is constructed or produced. Only that which had been before constructed is given to the person by whom it can be used. If labour is necessary to effect the exchange, the labour is in reality involved in the production, and like all other labour, bears profit. Whatever number of men are concerned in the manufacture or in the conveyance have share in the profit, but neither the manufacture nor the conveyance are the exchange, and in the exchange itself there is no profit. There may, however, be acquisition, which is a very different thing. If in the exchange one man is able to give what cost him little labour for what has cost the other much, he acquires a certain quantity of the produce of the other's labour. And precisely what he acquires, the other loses. In mercantile language, the person who thus acquires is commonly said to have made a profit. And I believe that many of our merchants are seriously under the impression that it is possible for everybody, somehow, to make a profit in this manner, whereas by the unfortunate constitution of the world we live in, the laws both of matter and motion have quite rigorously forbidden universal acquisition of this kind. Profit, or material gain, is attainable only by construction, or by discovery, not by exchange. Whenever material gain follows exchange, for every plus, there is a precisely equal minus. Unhappily for the progress of the science of political economy, the plus quantities, or if I may be allowed to coin an awkward plural, the pluses, make a very positive and venerable appearance in the world, so that everyone is eager to learn the science which produces results so magnificent. Whereas the minuses have, on the other hand, a tendency to retire into back streets and other places of shade, or even to get themselves put finally out of sight in graves, which renders the algebra of this science peculiar and difficulty to be legible, a large number of its negative signs being written by the account keeper 
in a kind of red ink which starvation thins and makes strangely pale, or even quite invisible ink for the present. The science of exchange, or as I hear it has been proposed to call it, of catalactics, considered as one of gain, is therefore simply worthless. But considered as one of acquisition, it is a very curious science, differing in its data and basis from every other science known. Thus, if I can exchange a needle with a savage for a diamond, my power of doing so depends either on the savage's ignorance of social arrangements in Europe, or on his want of power to take advantage of them, by selling the diamond to anyone else for more needles. If further, I make the bargain as completely and advantageous to myself as possible, by giving to the savage a needle with no eye in it, the advantage to me in the entire transaction depends wholly upon the ignorance, powerlessness, or heedlessness of the person dealt with. Do away with these, and catalactic advantage becomes impossible. Therefore, if the science of exchange relates to the advantage of only one of the exchanging persons, it is founded on the ignorance or incapacity of the opposite person. When these vanish, it also vanishes. All other sciences and arts except this have as their object the doing away with this lack of knowledge and artlessness. This science alone of sciences must, by all available means, promulgate and prolong its opposite lack of knowledge, otherwise the science itself is impossible. It is therefore peculiarly and alone the science of darkness, and probably a bastard science, not by any means a divine science, but one begotten by another father, that father who advising his children to turn stones into bread, is himself employed in turning bread into stones, and who, if you ask a fish of him, can give you but a serpent. The general law then respecting just or economical exchange is simply this. There must be advantage on both sides, or if only advantage on one, at least no disadvantage on the other, and just payment for his time, intelligence and labour to any intermediate people affecting the transaction, commonly known as a merchant. And whatever advantage there is on either side, and whatever pay is given to the intermediate person, should be thoroughly known to all concerned. All attempts at concealment imply some practice of the opposite, or undivine science, founded on a lack of knowledge. Whence another saying of the Jew merchants, As a nail between the stone joints, so doth sin stick fast between buying and selling. Up to now I have carefully restricted myself in speaking of exchange, to the use of the term advantage. But that term includes two ideas. The advantage namely of getting what we need, and that of getting what we wish for. Three quarters of the demands existing in the world are romantic, founded on visions, idealisms, hopes and affections. And the regulation of the purse is in its essence, regulation of the imagination and the heart. Hence, the right discussion of the nature of price is a very high metaphysical and psychical problem, sometimes to be solved only in a passionate manner, as by David in his counting the price of the water by the well. But its first conditions are the following. The price of anything is the quantity of labor given by the person desiring it in order to obtain possession of it. 
This price depends on four key variables. A. The quantity of wish the purchaser has for the thing, opposed to the quantity of wish the seller has to keep it. B. The quantity of labor the purchaser can afford to obtain the thing, opposed to the quantity of labor the seller can afford to keep it. These quantities are operative only in excess. The quantity of wish A means the quantity of wish for this thing above wish for other things, and the quantity of work means the quantity which can be spared to get this thing from the quantity needed to get other things. Phenomena of price, therefore, are intensely complex, curious, and interesting. Too complex, however, to be examined, and yet every one of them, when traced far enough, shows itself to be part of the bargain of the flock of slaughter. If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. But as the price of everything is to be calculated finely in labour, it is necessary to define the nature of that standard. Labour is the contest of the life of man with an opposite. The term life includes his intellect, soul and physical power, contending with question, difficulty, trial or material force. Labour is of higher or lower order, as it includes more or fewer of the elements of life and labour of good quality is in any kind, includes always as much intellect and feeling as will fully and harmoniously regulate the physical force. In speaking of the value and price of labour, it is necessary always to understand labour of a given rank and quality, as we should speak of gold or silver of a given standard. Bad labour, that is heartless, inexperienced or senseless, cannot be valued. It is like gold of uncertain alloy, or flawed iron. The quality and kind of labour being given, its value, like that of all valuable things, is invariable. But the quantity of it which must be given for other things is variable, and in estimating this variation, the price of other things must always be counted by the quantity of labour, not the price of labour by the quantity of other things. Thus, if we want to plant an apple sapling in rocky ground, it may take two hours' work. In soft ground, perhaps only half an hour. Grant the soil equally good for the tree in each case, then the value of the sapling planted by two hours' work is nowhere greater than the value of the sapling planted in half an hour. One will bear no more fruit than the other. Also, one half hour of work is as valuable as another half hour. Nevertheless, the one sapling has cost four pieces of the work, and the other only one. Now the proper statement of this fact is not that the labour on the hard ground is cheaper than on the soft, but that the tree is dearer. The exchange value may or may not afterwards depend on this fact. If other people have plenty of soft ground to plant in, they will take no cognizance of our two hours labour in the price they will offer for the plant on the rock. And if through want of sufficient botanical science we have planted an upper tree instead of an apple, the exchange value will be a negative quantity, still less proportionate to the labour expended. What is commonly called cheapness of labour signifies therefore in reality that many obstacles have to be overcome by it, so that much labour is required to produce a small result. But this should never be spoken of as cheapness of labour, but as dearness of the object wrought for. It would be just as rational say that walking was cheap because we had 10 miles to walk home to our dinner as that labour was cheap, 
because we had to work 10 hours to earn it. The last word which we have to define is production. I have hitherto spoken of all labour as profitable, because it is impossible to consider nor wonder head the quality or value of labour and its aim. But labour of the best quality may be various in its aim. It may be either constructive, as agriculture. It may be futile, as in jewel cutting or destructive, as in war. It is not, however, always easy to prove labour, apparently futile, to be actually so. He that gathereth not scattereth, and perhaps the jeweller's art is probably very harmful in its ministering to a clumsy and inelegant pride. I believe nearly all labour may be divided into positive and negative labour. Positive, that which produces life. Negative, that which produces death. The most directly negative labour being murder, the most positive, the bearing and rearing of children. For which reason, and because of the honour that there is in rearing children, the wife is said to be as the vine, the children as the olive branch. For praise and for peace, because large families can only be reared in times of peace. Though since in their spreading and voyaging in various directions they distribute strength, they are to the home strength, as arrows in the hands of the giant, striking here and there, far and away. Labour, being thus various in its results, the prosperity of any nation is in exact proportion to the quantity of labour which it spends in obtaining and employing means of life. Observe, I say, obtaining and employing. That is to say, not merely wisely producing, but wisely distributing and consuming. Economists usually speak as if there were no good in consumption absolute. So far from this being so, consumption absolute is the end, crown and perfection of production, and wise consumption is a far more difficult art than wise production. Twenty people can gain money for one who can use it, and the vital question for individual and for nation is never how much do they make, but rather to what purpose do they spend. Perhaps the reader is surprised at the slight reference I have hitherto made to capital and its functions. It is here the place to define them. Capital signifies head or source or root material. It is material by which some derivative or secondary good is produced. It is only capital proper, capital of life, not capital of death, when it is thus producing something different from itself. It is a root, which does not enter into vital function till it produces something else than the root, namely, fruit. That fruit will in time again produce roots, and so all living capital issues in reproduction of capital. But capital which produces nothing but capital is only root producing root. Bulb issuing bulb, never in tulip. Seed issuing seed, never in bread. The best and simplest general type of capital is a well-made plowshare. Now if that plowshare did nothing but beget other plowshares, However the great cluster of ploughs might glitter in the sun, it would have lost its function of capital. It becomes true capital only by another kind of splendour, when it is seen to grow bright in the furrow, rather with diminution of its substance than addition by the noble friction. And the true question to every capitalist and to every nation is not how many ploughs have you, but rather where are your furrows?
not how quickly will this capital reproduce itself, but what will it do during reproduction? What substance will it furnish good for life? What work construct protective of life? If none, its own reproduction is useless. If worse than none, for capital may destroy life as well as support it, its own reproduction is worse than useless. It is merely an advance on a mortgage, not a profit by any means. It is not a profit as the ancients truly saw, for capital is the head or fountainhead of wealth. As the clouds are the wellheads of rain, but when clouds are without water and only beget more clouds, they issue at last in wrath, and instead of rain, they are lightning instead of harvest. This being the real nature of capital, it follows that there are two kinds of true production always going on in an active state. One is of seed and one of food, or production for the ground and for the mouth. Both of which are by covetous persons thought to be production only for the granary, whereas the function of the granary is but intermediate and conservative, fulfilled in distribution, otherwise it ends in nothing but mildew and nourishment of rats and worms. And since production for the ground is only useful with the future hope of harvest, all essential production is for the mouth, and is finally measured by the mouth. Hence, as I said above, consumption is the crown of production, and the wealth of a nation is only to be estimated by what it consumes. The want of any clear sight of this fact is the capital error amongst the political economists. Their minds are continually set on money gain, not on mouth gain and they fall into every sort of net and snare, dazzled by the queen glitter as birds by the fowler's glass, or like children trying to jump on the heads of their own shadows, the money gain being only the shadow of the true gain, which is humanity. The final object of political economy, therefore, is to get good methods of consumption and great quantity of consumption. In other words, to use everything and to use it nobly, whether it be substance, service, or service-perfecting substance. The most curious error in Mr. Mill's entire work is his endeavour to distinguish between direct and indirect service and consequent assertion that a demand for commodities is not a demand for labour. He distinguishes between labourers employed to lay out pleasure grounds and to manufacture velvet, declaring that it makes great material difference to the labouring classes in which of these two ways a capitalist spends his money, because the employment of the gardeners is a demand for labour but the purchase of a velvet is not. Error colossal, as well as strange. It will indeed make a difference to the labourer whether we bid him swing his scythe in the spring winds or drive the loom in pestilential air. But as far as his pocket is concerned, it makes to him absolutely no difference whether we order him to make green velvet with seed and a scythe or red velvet with silk and scissors. Neither does it in any way concern him whether when the velvet is made we consume it by walking on it or wearing it as long as our consumption of it is wholly selfish. But if our consumption is to be any way wise or any way unselfish, not only our mode of consuming the articles requires interest him, but also the kind of articles we require him with a view to consumption. And thus, returning for a moment to Mr. Mill's great hardware theory, it matters so far as the labourer's immediate profit is concerned, not an iron filing whether I employ him in growing a peach or forging a bombshell, but my probable mode of consumption of those articles matters seriously. The difference to him is final, whether when his child is ill, 
I walk into his cottage and give it the peach, or drop the shell down his chimney and blow his roof off. The worst of it for the peasant is, that the capitalist consumption of the peach is apt to be selfish, and of the shell, distributive. But in all cases this is a broad and general fact, that on due catalactic commercial principles, somebody's roof must go off in fulfilment of the bomb's destiny. You may grow for your neighbour at your liking grapes or grape shot. He will also catalytically grow grapes or grape shot for you, and you will each reap what you have sown. It is therefore the manner and issue of consumption which are the real tests of production. Production does not consist in things laboriously made, but in things serviceably consumable. And the question for the nation is not how much labour it employs, but how much life it produces. For as consumption is the end and aims of production, so life is the end and aim of consumption. I left this question to the reader's thoughts two months ago, choosing rather that he should work it out for himself than have it sharply stated for him. But now the ground being sufficiently broken, I desire in closing the series of introductory papers to leave this one great fact clearly stated. There is no wealth but life. Life including all its powers of love, of joy, and of admiration. The country is the richest which nourishes the greatest number of noble and happy human beings. That man is richest, who having perfected the functions of his own life to the utmost, has also the widest helpful influence, both personal and by means of his possessions over the life of others. A strange political economy, the only one, nevertheless, that ever was or can be. All political economy founded on self-interest being but the fulfilment of that which once brought schism in the policy of angels and ruin into the economy of heaven. The greatest number of human beings noble and happy, but is the nobleness consistent with the number? Yes, not only consistent with it, but essential to it. The maximum of life can only be reached by the maximum of virtue. In this respect the law of human population differs wholly from that of animal life. The multiplication of animals is checked only by want of food and by the hostility of races. The population of the gnat is restrained by the hunger of the swallow and of the swallow by the scarcity of gnats. Man, considered as an animal, is indeed limited by the same laws, hunger, plague or war. They are necessary and only restraints upon his increase, effectual restraints. His principal studying having been the way to most swiftly destroy himself or ravage his dwelling places, and his high skill directed to give range to the famine, seed to the plague, and sway to the sword. But considered as other than animal, his increase is not limited by these laws. It is limited only by the limits of his courage and his love. Both of these have their bounds and ought to have. His race has its bounds also, but these have not yet been reached nor will be reached for ages. In all the ranges of human thought I know none so melancholy as the speculations of political economists on the population question. It is proposed to better the conditions of the labourer by giving him higher wages. No, says the economist, if you raise his wages he will either drag people down to the same point of misery at which you found him, or drink your wages away. He will, I know it. Who gave him this will? Suppose it were your own son of whom you spoke, declaring to me that you dared not take him into your firm, not even give him his just labourer's wages, because if you did, you would die of drunkenness and leave half a score of children to the parish. 
Who gave your son these dispositions, I should inquire? Has he them by inheritance, or by education? By one or other they must come, and is in him, so also in the poor. Either these poor are of a race essentially different from ours, and unredeemable, which however often implied I have heard none yet openly say, or else, by such cares we have ourselves received, we may make them continent and sober as ourselves, wise and dispassionate as we are, models of imitation. But it is answered, they cannot receive education. Why not? That is precisely the point at issue. Charitable persons suppose the worst fault of the rich is to refuse the people meat, and the people cry for their meat, kept back by fraud to the Lord of multitudes. Alas, it is not meat of which the refusal is cruelest, or to which the claim is validest. The life is more than the meat. The rich not only refuse food to the poor, they refuse wisdom, they refuse virtue, they refuse salvation. Ye sheep without shepherd, it is not the pasture that has been shut from you, but the presence. Meat, perhaps your right to that may be pleadable, but other rights have to be pleaded first. Claim your crumbs from the table if you will, but claim them as children, not as dogs. Claim your right to be fed, but claim more loudly your right to be holy, perfect, and pure. Strange words to be used of working people. What? Holy without any long robes nor anointing oils? These rough-jacketed, rough-worded persons set to nameless and dishonored service? Perfect. These with dim eyes and cramped limbs and slowly wakening minds? Pure. These with sensual desire and groveling thought, foul of body and coarse of soul. It may be so. Nevertheless, such as they are, they are the holiest, perfectest, purest people the earth can at present show. They may be what you have said, but if so, they yet are holier than we, who have left them thus. But what can be done for them? Who can clothe? Who can teach? Who restrain their multitudes? What end can there be for them at last but to consume one another? I hope for another end, though not indeed from any of the three remedies for overpopulation commonly suggested by economists. These three are in brief colonization, bringing in of wastelands, or discouragement of marriage. The first and second of these expedients merely evade or delay the question. It will indeed be long before the world has been all colonized and its deserts all brought under cultivation. But the radical question is not how much habitable land there is in the world, but how many humans ought to be maintained on a given space of habitable land. Observe, I say, ought to be, not how many can. Ricardo, with his usual inaccuracy, defines what he calls the natural rate of wages as that which will maintain the labourer. Maintain him? But how? The question was instantly thus asked of me by a working girl, to whom I read the passage. I will amplify her question for her. Maintain him? How? As first to what length of life? Out of a given number of fed persons, how many are to be old? How many young? That is to say, will you arrange their maintenance so as to kill them early? Say at 30 or 35 on the average, including deaths of weakly or ill-fed children? Or so as to enable them to live out a natural life? You will feed a greater number in the first case by rapidity of succession. Probably a happier number in the second. 
which does Mr. Ricardo mean to be their natural state, and to which state belongs the natural rate of wages. Again, a piece of land which will only support ten idle, ignorant and improvident persons will support thirty or forty intelligent and industrious ones. Which of these is their natural state? And to which of them belongs the natural rate of wages? Again, if a piece of land supports forty people in industrious ignorance, and if tired of this ignorance they set apart ten of their number to study the properties of cones and the size of stars, the labour of these ten being withdrawn from the ground must either tend to the increase of food in some transitional manner, or the person set apart for sidereal and conic purposes must starve, or someone else starve instead of them. What is therefore the natural rate of wages of the scientific persons? And how does this rate relate to or measure their averted or transitional productiveness? Again, if the ground maintains at first forty labourers in a peaceable and pious state of mind, but they become in a few years so quarrelsome and impious that they have to set apart five to mediate upon and settle their disputes, ten armed to the teeth with costly instruments to enforce the decisions, and five to remind everyone in an eloquent manner of the existence of God, what will the result be upon the general powers of production, and what is the natural rate of wages of the meditative, the muscular, and oracular labourers? Leaving these questions to be discussed or waived at their pleasure by Mr. Ricardo's followers, I proceed to state the main facts bearing on the probable future of the labouring classes, which has been partially glanced at by Mr. Mill. That chapter and the preceding one differ from the common writing of political economists in admitting some value in the aspect of nature, and expressing regret at the probability of destruction of natural scenery. But we may spare our anxieties on this head. Men can neither drink steam nor eat stone. The maximum of population on a given space of land implies also the relative maximum of edible vegetables, whether for cattle or men. It implies a maximum of pure air and of pure water. Therefore, a maximum of wood to transmute the air and of sloping ground, protected by herbage from the extreme heat of the sun, to feed the streams. All England may, if it so chooses, become one manufacturing town, and Englishmen, sacrificing themselves to the good of general humanity, may live diminished lives in the midst of noise, of darkness and of deadly exhalation. But the world cannot become a factory, nor a mine. No amount of ingenuity will ever make iron digestible by the million, nor substitute hydrogen for wine. Neither the avarice nor the rage of men will ever feed them, and however the apple of Sodom and the grape of Gomorrah may spread their table for a time with dainties of ashes and nectars of asps, so long as men live by bread, the faraway valleys must laugh as they are covered with the gold of God, and the shouts of his happy multitudes ring around the wine press and the well. Nor need our more sentimental economists fear the too widespread of the formalities of a mechanical agriculture. The presence of a wise population implies the search for happiness as well as for food. Nor can any population reach its maximum but through the wisdom which rejoices in the habitable parts of the earth. The desert has its appointed place and work, but the zones and lands between, habitable will be loveliest in habitation. The desire of the heart is also the light of the eyes. No scene is continually and untiringly loved but one rich by joyful human labour, smooth in field, fair in garden, full in orchard, trim sweet and frequent in homestead, 
ringing with voices of vivid existence. No air is sweet that is silent. It is only sweet when full of low currents of undersound, triplets of birds and the murmur and chirp of insects, and deeply toned words of men and wayward trebles of childhood. As the art of life is learned, it will be found at last that all lovely things are also necessary, the wild flower by the wayside as well as the tended corn, and the wild birds and creatures of the forest as well as the tended cattle, because man doth not live by bread alone, but also by the desert manner, by every wondrous word and unknowable work of God. Happy in that he knew them not, nor did his father know, and that around him reaches yet into the infinite the amazement of his existence. Note finally that all effectual advancement towards this true happiness of the human race must be by individual, not public effort. Certainly general measures may aid and certain revised laws guide such advancement, but the measure and law which have first to be determined are those of each man's home. We continually hear it recommended by wise people to complaining neighbours, usually less well placed in the world than themselves, that they should remain content in the station in which providence has placed them. There are perhaps some circumstances of life in which providence has no intention that people should be content. Nevertheless, the maxim is on the whole a good one, but it is peculiarly for home use. That your neighbour should or should not remain content with his position is not your business, but it is very much your business to remain content with your own. What is chiefly needed in England at the present day is to show the quality of pleasure that may be obtained by a consistent, well-administered competence, modest, confessed, and laborious. We need examples of people who decide for themselves that they will be happy in it and have resolved to seek not greater wealth, but simpler pleasure. Not higher fortune, but deeper happiness. Making the first of possessions self-possession and honouring themselves in the harmless pride and calm pursuits of peace. Of which lowly peace it is written that justice and peace have kissed each other, and that the fruit of justice is sown in peace of them that make peace. Not peacemakers in the common understanding, reconcilers of quarrels, but peace creators, givers of calm, which you cannot give unless you first gain, nor is this gain one which will follow assuredly on any course of business, commonly so called. No form of gain is less probable, business being essentially restless, and probably contentious, having a raven-like mind to the motion to and fro, as to the carrion food, whereas the olive-feeding and bearing birds look for rest for their feet. Thus it is said of wisdom, that she hath builded her house and hewn out her seven pillars, and even when, though apt to wait long at the doorpost, she has to leave her house and go abroad, her paths are peace also. For us at all events her work must begin at the entry of the doors. All true economy is law of the house. Strive to make that law strict, simple, generous. Waste nothing and grudge nothing. Care in no way to make more of money, but care to make much of it. Remembering always the great palpable inevitable fact, the rule and root of all economy, that what one person has, another cannot have, and that every atom of substance, of whatever kind, used or consumed, is so much human life spent. In all buying, consider first what condition of existence you cause in the producers of what you buy. 
whether the sum you have paid is just to the producer and in due proportion lodged in his hands. Thirdly, to how much clear use for food, knowledge or joy this that you have bought can be put. And fourthly, to whom and in what way it can most speedily and servicely be distributed. In all dealings, insist on entire openness and stern fulfillment. And in all doings, on perfection and loveliness of accomplishment, especially on fineness and purity of all marketable commodity, watching at the same time for all ways of gaining or teaching powers of simple pleasure, and of showing in simple things which even the poor enjoy, the sum of enjoyment depending not on the quantity of things tasted, but on the vivacity and patience of taste. And if, on due and honest thought over these things, it seems that the kind of existence to which men are now summoned by every plea of pity and claim of right may for some time at least not be a luxurious one. Consider whether, even supposing it guiltless, luxury would be desired by any of us if we saw clearly at our sides the suffering which accompanies it in the world. Luxury is indeed possible in the future. Innocent and exquisite, luxury for all and by the help of all. But luxury at present can only be enjoyed by the ignorant. The cruelest man living could not sit at his feast unless he sat blindfolded. Raise the veil boldly, face the light. And if as yet the light of the eye can only be seen through tears, and the light of the body through sackcloth, go thou forth weeping, bearing precious seed, until the time in the kingdom, when Christ's gift of bread and bequest of peace shall be unto this last as unto thee. And when for earth's multitudes of wicked and weary there shall be holier reconciliation than that of the narrow home and the calm economy, where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. Mm-hmm.